So I'm on this amazing trip for the last uh, last week and change. And part of it, I'm in Italy. And we decide to go to Parma. That's where they make Parmesan cheese. That's where they make Parma ham. Beautiful town, kind of quaint, some really nice old buildings. So we go to one of the factories where they make Parma ham. And um, the, there's a guide who's giving us a tour. And at the beginning of it, there's like, I don't know, six or seven other people in our tour group. And I ask, what do the pigs eat? And I said, you know, whenever I see mafia movies, it's always the pigs are eating someone's enemies. That's what they do. You know, you kill some guy, you feed him to the pigs. That's like how you send a message. So I said, what do the pigs eat besides people? Which, of course, then everybody in our tour group was disgusted. They're horrified with me. Like, who who talks about murdering people and feeding them to pigs? And the guide is like, no, no, actually, they only eat cheese curds and acorns, so not people. Anyways, we're, we're getting a tour of the factory, and the guide with this thick Italian accent goes, uh, the way we check if the ham is spoiled and very few of them are spoiled, but the way we check if they're spoiled is, and he says in this thick accent, we stick a horse bone into the ham and pull it out and smell it. Now you didn't sound quite like that. That's like a Borat accent, but whatever, you get the point. And so I immediately go before I can even stop and think, where do you get a steady supply of horse bones? Ghislaine Maxwell. And there's just silence. And everyone in the group is looking at me horrified that I would say this. And the guide is looking really confused. And he starts talking about how there's a, a farm up the road and that's where they get them from. And then someone in the group explains to me that he said horse bone, not whore's bone. But how could I know that? On our last episode, we talked about the threat of China and a conflict over Taiwan. And I got a lot of feedback requesting a deeper dive into that topic and a deeper understanding of what that could mean for the world, for the U.S., what that conflict could look like. So I want to walk through that today. In my opinion, a war with China is the greatest threat to geopolitical stability that we face. That's the number one thing. That's the thing that keeps me up at night. It would be the defining event of the 21st century, much as World War I and World War II were the defining event, uh, events of the 20th century, this would be the equivalent. And it would have, I believe, multiple fronts, assuming that this was a war that was uh, catalyzed by, uh, by conflict over Taiwan, it would have multiple fronts. And, you know, China is, is hugely worried about a conflict on two fronts. Just as if you recall in World War II, the U.S. was prepared for and had to fight a war on two fronts, both in Europe and in Asia. China is very focused on that. Mao Zedong himself wrote extensively on the topic of war on two fronts. And he believed that it was that issue that caused Nazi Germany to collapse, that the Germans were fighting the French to the West and they were fighting in Kalingrad against the Russians to the East. 
And so they tried to invade both at the same time. And that's what led to the defeat of the Germans in World War II, according to Mao. And in China now, there are thousands of scholars who are writing about the topic of war on two fronts and what works and what doesn't. You know, I'm of the belief that the way we have think tanks in the U.S., in China, there's like 60,000 PhDs that are just like locked in a bunch of buildings studying every single dynasty and great power and lesser power of the last 2,000 years and trying to learn from their mistakes. Now, China is in what I would perceive to be a pre-war tempo of operations, politically and militarily. It doesn't mean they're about to launch a war, but they are doing what a country would do if they were preparing to launch a war. And so let's talk about what those fronts of that conflict would be. If it was a war on two fronts for China, what would that look like? Well, the first, and I think the most likely, is Taiwan. Taiwan is the place that has the greatest potential to turn competition into confrontation. There is a very precarious peace in the region. And remember, China believes that Taiwan is part of their territory. They believe that there is one China. And that's a a policy and a myth that the U.S. has upheld for nearly 50 years now. Remember that in the 1940s, the government that controlled China fought the communists and lost, and they fled, the leaders of that government fled to Taiwan, and the communists took over in mainland China. And so they fled to Taiwan, and they were like a government in exile, and said, we're setting up our own independent country here. And China said, no, no, this is just part of China, and and you're a bunch of, uh, a bunch of losers who, who lost the war. And so Taiwan has functioned separately from China for 70 years now, but China claims that it is part of its territory and desperately wants to reunify with Taiwan. And in the meantime, Taiwan has been on a hell of a run. I mean, they've, they've created incredible industry and a thriving democracy, a really incredible, vibrant country with extraordinary freedom political stability, wealth, prosperity. I mean, it's, it's really a successful place. And China has threatened to retake Taiwan for a long time. They want it. They crave having Taiwan. The peace is precarious in this region. The U.S. has deterred China from using military force because Beijing is not sure that the U.S. would step aside and allow them to take over Taiwan. But also, the U.S. has deterred Taiwan from trying to formally declare independence because Taiwan is not sure that the U.S. would come to its defense. And so you have this equilibrium that has created peace. And it's worked. It has worked very effectively. China benefits from Taiwan investing in China and from peace and prosperity and from stability. Xi Jinping, the ruler of the Chinese Communist Party since 2012, is being much more assertive. He 
militarized the South China Sea. He challenged Japan over islands called the Senkaku Islands. He has fought with India. We'll talk more about that later. And he's been trying to intimidate Taiwan. Now, Chinese behavior in Hong Kong following the handover in 1997, that's a really good lesson. Because after that happened, the Chinese promised one country, two systems. They promised that Hong Kong could function independently. And they've shown that that's not true, that they cannot be trusted. They have crushed local governance, the rule of law, the freedom of the press. Taiwan wants no part of that. They will not accept or believe this Chinese promise that they made to Hong Kong. When Donald Trump took over as president, his first official call as president was with the president of Taiwan. And some people believed at the time, and the press made it look as if that was a sign that Trump was duped, that the U.S. doesn't officially recognize Taiwan. And so by accepting that call, that he was sending a signal that was very positive for Taiwan and showed our support for Taiwan and that he didn't intend to and, and he was unsophisticated and he got duped. There's another perspective on that, though, which is that he was trying to send a signal that the U.S. is a close ally of Taiwan, that we support democracies and free countries around the world in the face of tyranny and in the face of military threats and saber rattling. Biden has continued that. He said soon after his inauguration, quote, our commitment to Taiwan is rock solid and contributes to the maintenance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and within the region. A democratic and free Taiwan bothers China the way that West Berlin bothered East Germany. It's like it is flaunting the virtues of freedom and liberalism, and the Communist Party hates it. China wants to replace the U.S. as the most important power in the region, and Xi Jinping is convinced that the U.S. is in decline, and China deserves and wants to be the greatest power in the world. Defense spending in the U.S. is still much greater than it is in China. We spend about $685 billion annually on defense spending. China spends about $181 billion. So it's almost four to one. But remember that China pays its soldiers a lot less. So it's not really a perfect comparison. And then besides the hard power and the military spending, remember that there's soft power as well. Beijing's soft power and its values really only appeal to governments with authoritarian tendencies. The U.S. has, through its, its cultural strength, the ability to project soft power around the world. And that is crucial. We must invest in that. I think increasingly countries are going to be forced to pick sides between the U.S. and China. And India is going to be a really important one. India is not a treaty ally of the United States, but India increasingly sees that its ability to avoid intimidation from Beijing is linked to closer relations with the West. Democratic countries 
decisively see China as a threat to their values and to their well-being. Look at Taiwan. It is one of the most successful societies on earth. It is a flourishing democracy. It is governed by the rule of law. It holds free and fair elections. It protects the political and human rights of its citizens. It has unfettered and competitive media. It endorses religious diversity. It is a responsible actor on the international stage. And it has a population of 23 million people. That's larger than most countries. Taiwan is a really important place, and it is essential that the U.S. protect Taiwan. Now, one of the things that makes Taiwan so essential is its semiconductor industry. And we talked about this a little bit on the last episode. The world economy would grind to a halt without Taiwan's semiconductor industry. There is a company in Taiwan called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp, TSMC. It is one of the largest companies in the world, and it is one of the most important companies. They are the world leader in manufacturing chips, computer chips, that go into everything. Our domestic champion in the US, Intel, is a huge and well-capitalized firm. They cannot keep up with TSMC. So the, the question is not just, can we throw a bunch of money at it and replicate what TSMC does, but do it domestically? But TSMC is so important that if China invaded Taiwan, the US would be forced regardless of whether we wanted to, we would be forced to intervene to protect Taiwan in order to protect TSMC. Otherwise, we would have a catastrophic recession in the global economy. I mean, one that would last for years, maybe the largest ever. And we're trying, we're trying to build this chip making capacity in the US. The Senate just authorized $50 billion for it. But again, it's not just a question of throwing money at it. And China knows that they are also dependent on TSMC. They've tried to build their own company internally called SMIC. They've tried to build SMIC in China so that they would no longer be dependent on TSMC and they could invade Taiwan. The only way for SMIC to compete is to get the machines that it needs to make these advanced kinds of chips. And there's only one company in the world that makes these machines. It's a Dutch company called ASML. And ASML makes these machines that can do extreme ultraviolet lithography. That's the process for making the most sophisticated chips. So if you can't buy the machines from ASML, you can't build your own semiconductor giant in China, and then it becomes harder to invade Taiwan. And so the US is putting a lot of pressure on the Dutch, on ASML, to prevent them from exporting any equipment to China. This is really important. It is crucial that we are able to sanction SMIC so as to prevent them from getting their hands on this. In fact, I would say that world peace depends on preventing the Chinese from building their own semiconductor giant. So the next question is, how do you defend Taiwan? The former leader of Taiwan's military, Admiral Li Ximing, 
has been a, a really important voice in all of these events. And he said, quote, how do you defend Taiwan? All I can hear is that the United States will intervene. What reason is there to believe that the United States will sacrifice the lives of its own children to defend Taiwan? My best bet is my own strength to stop people from bullying me. And he's right. Taiwan needs a powerful military response. But how do you compete with the Chinese? There's no way Taiwan can build a military as large as China's. But I think as Americans, we, we would expect Taiwan to invest heavily in its military. What does that mean? Does that mean forced military service for everyone in the country? Probably. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. If you want the U.S. to come to your aid, you better do everything that you can. Don't just depend on us. And so I would expect there would be a draft. I would expect that everybody in Taiwan is part of the military. I would expect a meaningful portion of GDP to be spent on the military. And then it's reasonable to say, hey, were your ally come to our aid? So what would conflict with China over Taiwan look like? I think there are really three scenarios. The first is that China invades some of the smaller islands, some of which are uninhabited, around Taiwan in order to send a message. I'm not sure that really does very much. I mean, sure, China could probably succeed at conquering one or more of these islands, but it still doesn't settle the question of Taiwanese sovereignty. And all it does is provoke a lot of anger. So the second scenario, the second and more drastic scenario, is that China establishes a quarantine, not a blockade, but a quarantine around Taiwan, in which China says, you can keep running the country however you want, but we are going to patrol the seas around Taiwan, and anything that we don't like can't get through. So food, oil, that's fine. Let that through. It's not a blockade. But if you try to send military equipment, we're going to stop it. And that's an interesting trick because it's China has said for 50 plus years, Taiwan is is part of China. So all they're saying then is we're defending our sovereign territory and we're preventing military equipment from getting into the hands of rebels. I mean, imagine if there was a group in the U.S., that tried to buy a bunch of missiles, we would expect that, I don't know, the Coast Guard or the Navy would be patrolling the waters and stop Iran, say, from shipping missiles to a rebel group in the US. So China would be trying to do the same thing. And it might be a very effective tactic. So what would we do if China did that? How would we respond? I think it would be difficult for the US to penetrate this blockade without a direct military conflict. So the option for the US, I see it, would be a counter blockade of China. That's difficult, but it's it's feasible. I mean, there are some, some shipping lanes that are really important to China, and the US could try this counter quarantine, but it would be a major military provocation. And it's also tricky because much of China's seaborne trade occurs close to China with Taiwan, with Japan, with Korea. And so you'd be 
trying to enforce this quarantine very close to China. And I'm not even sure it would be so effective because China can still get all the oil and gas it needs from Russia, overland from Russia, and there's no way for the U.S. to interdict at the Russia-Chinese border. And the third possible scenario, besides invading the small islands, besides a quarantine, the third and probably scarier scenario is a full-blown invasion of Taiwan. A full-blown invasion. There are about 15 ports and beaches, and the Chinese military, the Navy and the Marines equivalent, would, would try to land on those beaches and invade Taiwan. They would take over. And this is, this is a scary scenario. Lots of people will die. It would be a really bad conflict. You know, the Taiwanese would try to defend themselves and hold out. At a minimum, you would think they would try to hold out until reinforcements arrive, right? Please, U.S., come to our aid. We're going to fight tooth and nail until you can come help us. And by the way, the Japanese would probably need to intervene as well. And in this event that there is this conflict, remember what else would happen. China is the largest holder of U.S. Treasury bonds. And so if the U.S. and China go to war, the U.S. would stop making interest payments on Chinese treasuries and could potentially try to cancel Chinese bonds. This is an economic provocation that is so severe and so drastic that it could basically break the world economy. So it's a deterrent, but you can't really threaten it unless you truly intend to go to war. It's not a, it, it's a very drastic move. And so that's one of the things that would happen if the U.S. goes to war. Now, we talked about conflict on two fronts. So what's the other front? I think the most likely one is India. There's a border in northern India that is shared with China. And this border, it, the, the Indian side of that region is called Ladakh. And um, there's dispute over the exact location of the border. India says it should be here. China says it should be there. The difference is only a handful of feet, and they're not fighting over very valuable terrain. It's just a bunch of rocks and ice high up in the mountains in the Himalayas. This isn't like they're fighting over, over an oil field or a, a gold mine. There's nothing there. So India has its soldiers that patrol on one side of the border. China has soldiers patrolling on the other side of the border. And sensibly, in order to prevent a serious conflict, neither side is armed with guns. They really only carry these like medieval weapons, clubs and rocks and stuff like that. And in 2020, in June of 2020, the Chinese army launched a bizarre but calculated attack against India in the Himalayas. China had its soldiers literally try to beat up the Indian soldiers. And there's a, there's a river, a freezing cold river that runs through this disputed territory. And the Chinese kicked and pushed a whole bunch of Indian soldiers into that river. About 20 of them drowned in the freezing water after they, they fought with clubs and rocks. I believe that this was China trying to 
test the waters. Recall that this was at the peak of COVID in the US, around the world. The world was highly distracted and China wanted to see how the US would react. Did the US share intelligence with India about this? Did they provide diplomatic support? Did they make public statements in favor of one country or the other? Did the US indicate that it was going to start moving naval resources into the area? And China intentionally violated Taiwanese airspace at the exact same time, just to see what are the red lines here? How will the US and India handle this? It's a really interesting experiment that they tried. I'm not sure it's a guarantee of exactly how the world would react in a more meaningful conflict, because like I said, this was a relatively small border skirmish. It did serve to catalyze public opinion in India. It had a really major effect on public opinion in India. It pushed India much closer to the arms of the US. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it, and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify, they'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now, the other country that we need to talk about is Japan. Japan is a key ally of the U.S. in this region. It's essential that to prepare for conflict, that we make preparations closely with Japan. In order for us to have a credible campaign plan related to Taiwan, we need to have close discussions between leaders in the U.S. and Japan as well as South Korea, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Australia. But we need to have close coordination of political, economic, and military matters to understand how we will react. Because in the event of war over Taiwan, it's very likely that Japan will be attacked as well. And at a minimum, Japan would have to support U.S. operations if we get involved in that conflict. Japan would likely start rapidly rearming and militarizing. I mean, a, a Chinese takeover of Taiwan would be seen as an existential threat to Japan. So, so let's talk about the political piece. Does Japan need authorizations and legal frameworks in place so that they can be prepared to move quickly in case of the outbreak of war? What about logistical items? Are fuel supplies adequate? Does Japan have adequate military decoys? Do they have reinforced supply pipelines? 
There needs to be a preparation for a whole government response, for casualties, for evacuations. It's not just about ships and planes. You need to protect ports, food supplies, civilians. So what's my conclusion here? Number one, the threat of a conflict between the U.S. and China is greatest over Taiwan. And that's what keeps me up at nights. That's a big deal. The United States cannot and should not care more about preserving Taiwan's democracy than the citizens of, of Taiwan. They're the ones that are closest to the danger. But those societies, Taiwan, Japan, others in the area, will be influenced by the attitudes of the United States. Every country is going to follow the lead of the United States. If China tries something in Taiwan, every country is going to follow the lead of the United States. They will want to think and act in lockstep with the U.S. Their readiness must be in some alignment with the U.S. So the planning issues matter a lot. The U.S. and Japan cannot credibly promise to behave automatically, robotically, regardless of the circumstances. What they can credibly promise is to prepare to act. They can make those preparations plausible and visible, and that process will itself help prepare those societies to act in a coordinated way. This is really important. China is obsessed with the idea of a two-front conflict, and they have been seemingly testing the waters over the past year. It is crucial that we understand those preparations and that we have a strategy to act. This overall campaign plan would be a, a military challenge that could well escalate into rapid and disorderly divisions of the world into two economic spheres. This is the Cold War turning into a hot war, and it could happen within days or weeks, and it will force countries and, and companies to make painful choices. The United States and its friends would suffer painful sacrifices. China would have to redefine its future after it had provoked a division of the world in which a large part of the world mobilized against China in, in a way and to an extent that had never happened before. This would be so incredibly drastic. I hope it does not happen, but this is the conflict that I worry about the most. With that, thanks for tuning into The Lee Show. It's been great speaking with you. You can find me on Twitter at Bressler Nation. You can find my writings on Substack, and I look forward to joining you again soon.